The following podcast is rated M for mature language, themes, and content. Listener discretion is advised. And it's also rated S for spoilers. Lots and lots of spoilers. In a world of cable cutting and video on demand, one streaming service offers a ray of hope to humankind. From the heights of science fiction, fantasy, and animation, to the depths of reality TV and everything in between. We're looking at you, rom-coms. Netflix originals deliver the content you crave, but are they good? We're about to find out. This is Netflix and Podcast. So yeah, like, so we see this, this flag out in front of the dude's house, and she's like, you know, I thought Joe Exotic ran for, you know, governor. I'm like, oh, he ran for president first. She's like, I don't know about that. And then she's like, actually, you, you probably would know that. And I was like, yeah, I can tell you a lot more <laughs> specific details. I think at this point, I've got it down. <laughs> All right, everybody. Well, I'm Dr. T and I'm here with my co-hosts, Joy and Seamus. Thank you as always for joining us here at Netflix and Podcast, the show where we talk about Netflix originals and Netflix originals only. We then examine them through the lens of storytelling, psychology, sociology, and visual effects. And when it's all said and done, we give them a thumbs up or a thumbs down. So we're on episode three of The Tiger King, The Secret. This was... So ominous. Yes, this was a very salacious, <laughs> ominous episode. Obviously, we left off from episode two's cliffhanger with Joe and everybody else talking about Carol killing her husband and then potentially, you know, him having all these millions of dollars and then him potentially having been actually fed to tigers. And now we get to see all that laid bare and in glorious detail. What were your kind of top level takes on this episode? I love true crime. So I like that we get to dive into yet another mystery and angle to this whole cast of characters. Let's yeah. See. So what do you think, Seamus? Uh, I like this episode too, just because it, uh, you know, mo the entire series is called Tiger King, but Joe Exotic doesn't really make that much of an appearance in this one. It's like the beginning and the end. He sort of bookends it. And honestly, in the beginning, it's more Doc Antle talking about Joe's music video, Here Kitty Kitty, which is, he uses like a Carol lookalike to feed fake body parts of her husband to tigers. It's, it's pretty crazy. But not surprising how much we know about Joe. Other than like the bookended Joe pieces, it feels like a quality episode of Dateline almost. You know, it's yep very like layered and true crime feeling and that sort of thing. So I thought it was it was a nice like not necessarily detour, but short way. Well, detour around like <laughs> the Joe Exotic main storyline. But they still talk about how it's it's basically a Carol and Joe rivalry at, at the heart of it all think that you're both right it's this is like the true this is the full true crime episode you really at this point are only talking about tigers or big cats in the service of the the human interest story you know this is kind of where i feel like the documentarians pretty much abandon their original thesis which is going to be like the blackfish of big cats if you guys recall blackfish that really was about the way that uh, orcas and and large sea mammals are managed at parks like SeaWorld, of course. This isn't that. It's not really even about tiger ownership and cats in general. It's really about Joe and Carol 
and their rivalry. And this is really diving right into kind of Carol's big skeleton in the closet, possibly literally skeleton in the closet or skeleton in the meat grinder or in the tiger belly. But it's all about Carol. It's all about, you know, her, at this point, late ex-husband, Don Lewis, and what happened to him and a lot of the speculation and theories about it. And obviously, we're probably going to speculate a little bit. You know, we kind of get the breakdown. Uh, like you said, Seamus, Doc Antle kind of gives us the intro to this. You know, he's kind of throwing out some Doc Antleisms. He's like, oh, it's so wild. It must not be true, right? Cold cases never get solved. And, you know, just big, bombastic language. And then we get into you know, a little bit of a, a snippet from Carol, which kind of paints her in a bit of a suspicious light where she says, you know, like I have no regrets in my life. And it just, she just sort of looks ominous and it's kind of casting her in this frankly dangerous light. And then the ex-wife verbally says, you know, she's dangerous. And so it's very much about creating an image where, you know, okay, did Carol actually have an involvement in this thing? Is she who she says uh, she is? Is she capable I guess, of, of murder really is what they're alleging. Yeah. Well, the, um, Don's first wife even said like, yeah, she's an angel sent from hell and mm -hmm. you're going to find out soon enough, you know, and you got to take all that with a grain of salt. Um, just because he left her for a much younger woman and, and all that kind of stuff, but you can see it throughout this episode. Anytime they're interviewing Don's first family, as it were, the amount of disdain and hatred behind his first wife's eyes. Oh yeah. She is dead serious when she talk when she makes the statements that she makes. It, it didn't appear in the episode had decided that there was going to be a divorce. And then he met this woman afterwards. No, it was, he basically abandoned his family and it seemed like it was right. kind of very abrupt. And kind of stereotypically she's blaming or it seems like she's got a lot of anger towards Carol when in reality, what we know about Don, and this is straight from them and his family, he was a serial cheater, a philanderer, a liar. He had a double life from the very beginning. I think his daughter mentions that he maybe even what you would call a sex addict. I mean, it sounds like Don Lewis was kind of a scumbag. And it's just one of those things where it's so easy for the person who's cheated on to blame the person who did the cheating with their partner. But Don was the one who was doing this. It wasn't the first time. He, it was an old hat for him. And Carol herself was just one in a long line of you know, interludes that, uh, that Don engaged in. But I think here's the real rub. And it's his original wife knew that he was like that and accepted him. She was willing to stay with him and basically turn a blind eye and allow him to have his little things on the side. So she right. gave him that much rope for the sake of keeping the family unit together, which she is like really old. Right. She gave him the big hall pass. So to be given the hall pass and then to actually give your husband the hall pass and then have him then like leave you for the hall pass. No, that's even worse. She, probably would have been fine if he had just kept Carol as a girlfriend. There's a, a, a rule for that hall pass, which was don't let the kids know or don't get the kids involved. And I think he broke that with Carol where either she came by or called the house or something happened. I don't remember exactly what happened, but they did mention in this episode, you know, there was some sort of contact between Carol and the kids. And that was like the bright line that 
should not have been crossed. And that was, yeah. that was when the, the ex-wife was like, okay, this is, this is a different level. Yeah. And then of course, Don straight up left her and checked up with Carol and uh, so on and so forth. Despite all of the philandering and everything and the cheating, you know, they're just sticking with it. But um, a couple other things interesting about Don was he was kind of like low key about his wealth. You know, it sounded like he typically dressed in jeans and a t-shirt, didn't drive flashy cars. Um, it was generally suspicious of appearing wealthy to the extent that he was burying money and allegedly burying gold bars and things like that and, and different pieces of property. So he was kind of an eccentric millionaire, I guess was sort of the the take that I got. What, what did you guys think about just Don in general and, and maybe apart from his, his cheating and, um, you know, his different affairs with women? Yeah, I mean, the, the actual episode like didn't touch on this but um something else that i had heard about is they never really talk about how he made his money when carol met him he had money but not the amount of money that he gained in their marriage together so i think also she probably knows how he was making his money and they just didn't even touch on that a documentary maybe because she wasn't willing to talk about it and even his lawyer said a couple things that made you go, hmm, that's interesting. Hmm. What do you remember what those were for you? He just was being really vague when they were really pushing him to answer questions. And the when you're watching the documentary, you could almost assume that they want you to think about Carol, but where my mind my mind went was illegal activity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they kind of hinted at that a little bit, talking about, you know well, if you do something down in Costa Rica, you're just going to get disappeared and kind of insinuating that there's probably some illicit activity going on. Now, I do know that definitely when Carol and Don were married, they actually were developing low, like low income rental properties at this point. So like literally today, right now, most of Carol's income is coming from those rental properties. And that was one of the things that over the course of the documentary, they implied that she's either making her money from donations, from pro-animal supporters on Facebook, or, you know, she's making money from her park and things of that nature. And that's really not the case. She has this entire like real estate empire. And that was something that she built with Don. And I don't know if maybe he had just started that when they first got together, or it had been maybe progressing for a few years and just hadn't really reached its it's Zenith by the time they first met. Um, but that was definitely a big part of what they did together. And I think that was a big portion of their income stream. You know, of course, you know, in addition to real estate, was he buying and selling other kind of stuff, you know, maybe running a little, little weed or, you know, trafficking like cars and things of that nature, who knows. So we get a little bit, bit of background on Don. He's certainly eccentric. He's certainly mysterious. It all kind of fits the pattern though, because, been cheating on his wife for what seems like decades. He's probably doing the same kind of stuff with his uh, his business dealings where there's a front in terms of his family life. There's a front, which is this happy marriage to his wife. He's got a couple kids, but behind the scenes, he's just cheating left and right. There's probably a front to his business as well, where he's got an office and he's got secretaries and probably some legal um, dealings and assets. But then really, who knows what's going on behind the scenes? Because Clearly, he didn't have those kind of scruples. He was happy to live that, that double life. 
And it's likely that he was doing that across several domains. It's unlikely that he was conducting himself with extreme integrity. You know, obviously he's an older man. He's, uh, I believe, in his uh, 40s when he first met um, Carol. But before we get into how he and Carol met, we also get a little bit of more, a little bit more backstory on Carol. Now, for both of you, did this change how you viewed her after finding out a little bit more about some of the stuff that happened to her and you know, kind of her childhood and, and some of those events in her life? It's interesting because you, we talked about Joe's upbringing that wasn't revealed in the documentary, but this was, and it's similar in terms of how awful it is. You know, the, she reveals that she was raped at knife point by three people just across the street from her house when she was 14. And because of her religious upbringing, you know, it's kind of more pointed in the direction of her own fault for being there, you know, wrong place, wrong time kind of thing. And then she ran away um, a year later, I think, maybe one or two years after that yep. whole incident and, um, you know, married her first husband, which only really mentions him. But, um, she said something that was interesting that didn't necessarily make me think differently of her at all. But she said, you know, my first husband was abusive, but I had no money to leave him. And it was terrifying to think about that. So obviously like financial means are on her mind, but that's on anyone's mind. So she meets Don, you know, the night after she has a fight with the first husband kind of thing. Um, and at this point, Don isn't as wealthy as he was when he disappeared, but he still had, had money. So there's some allure to that as well, I mm -hmm. think, you know? What do you think, Joy? The sad reality is I don't have one female acquaintance or girlfriend who wasn't introduced to sex in not a great way. Mm, so wow. that's just the reality that we live in. It's sad, but it's true. But I think it happens a lot for men too. It's just, it's, it's not talked about. So I just think, sure. you know, overall, that's a whole other topic maybe another documentary. We have a couple of them we could watch. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But yeah, I think understanding that she was really looking for safety and security. So you can see how, again, as a young woman, um, someone who older is going to feel really safe to her, especially since she had a, a daughter and yep. wanted to take care of her. It makes total sense that she found herself completely in love with a older man of means who also had this definite allure to him. You know, Seamus, you mentioned that there's a lot of parallels here between Carol's story and Joe's. And that's another reason why I think it's kind of uh, a shame that the documentary did not cover that, did not cover Joe's story this way. And it really goes yeah. back to what you're saying, Joy, where sexual assault is, is common we do talk about it more these days in terms of, of the female experience, but there's still, we're still a lot more taciturn when it comes to talking about it with men. And that actually plays out in the Tiger King where Joe himself was, was sexually abused as a child. They did not mention it. However, they did mention it in terms of Carol's experience. And I think that's interesting because knowing that you, you realize they're both they both have this shared experience where they were the victim essentially and their families subsequently rejected them. Joe's dad literally said, I want you to promise you're not going to come to my funeral. Carol's parents essentially blame her 
for being raped. And again, you know, both of those were more normal in our culture going back a few decades. I actually just finished watching the I'll Be Gone in the Dark uh, documentary, the HBO series. And one of the most shocking things about that was how it was almost standard police protocol to question rape victims as if they were somehow inviting or uh, like, like they did something basically. It's like, well, what did you do to invite this rapist to rape you? And it's like insane that that was the standard process. That was how these crimes were treated. And I, I don't know if it was said in um, I'll be gone in the dark, but you know, I believe that there's a line somewhere around this subject where women are responsible for men's violence towards them or like that's and i'm not saying that's actually true that's just the thought that was how people thought back then and sadly that's how a lot of people think these days where we see that kind of pattern repeated over and over again but just looking at this case in in uh, particular you know carol and joe both both have this shared experience they both have this shared trauma and it makes it more interesting to me knowing how their lives then intersect as adults that they really did have this this commonality and in many ways are probably way more way more similar and way more you know i could just see a different world where they actually like got along like i could just see a different universe where they actually recognized how similar they were whereas what ended up happening was you know maybe because of that shared trauma or whatever on a subconscious level they just they butt heads that much more um, it's like the it's like two magnets that have the same polarity resisting each other when in fact they're actually more similar than not. A couple other things, you know, for Carol's story, I did listen to an interview that she gave for um, a podcast series called Joe Exotic, the Tiger King. And, you know, she talks about marrying her first husband, Jeff, having a kid with him, having a daughter. You know, she mentioned she's not really the motherly type and never really wanted to have kids. So it seems like she just kind of had a kid because it was the thing you're supposed to do. But he was abusive. They did talk about how, you know, it ultimately came to a head with her throwing a potato at him in the midst of a fight and her leaving the house. And the documentary talks about Carol going barefoot through yards and down roads and finding herself on a, on a street, just walking down a, a road somewhere in Tampa, Florida, and men stopping and kind of whistling at her and, and kind of checking her out and ultimately dawn comes around but what they also didn't say was the street that she was on in tampa is actually a well-known what you would almost consider like red light district if you will where there's a reason lots of why, ladies on the corner right exactly and so it's actually quite unusual that she would be walking on that road um you know i've heard people who are actually from tampa speaking about this case um, or speaking about this story from Carol and saying, it's like, you would not, it's just not the kind of, you would not be walking down this road at night if you did not know what that place was about. If you did not have some prior experience, I'm not saying that Carol engaged in those types of activities, but you know, Hey, let's be serious here. She had to leave home at age 15. She had that, that early trauma. It's not unlikely again, that she had to do something just to survive. And so it's possible that, that could have been what she was doing, you know, basically like, Hey, my, you know, my quote unquote husband by, by name and law only is a piece of garbage and we just got in a fight. Well, maybe I can make some money. It's, they don't talk about that, but it definitely seems like that's a possibility. And it's also 
very much why Dawn was there. I mean, this was not just driving down a street. This is likely where Dawn would go when he was looking to cheat on his wife. Go pick somebody up and then go to a hotel, which is exactly what he did with Carol. And mm -hmm. first came around to talk to her, probably propositioned her. And then for whatever reason, you know, she kind of blew him off. Then he comes back around and is like, well, you can hold this gun on me. He's got a, a revolver on the seat. It's like, you can hold this gun on me. And um, that way, going to do anything. That's crazy. Yeah. It very may well be that Carol, you know, was a sex worker for part right. of her time. And hey, no shame in that. But right. uh, it's the way she tells the story. But of course, you would want to frame it in that way. Because people are super judgmental. And then she's already getting all this other scrutiny sure. about this. If she, if she were to add that on top, she knows then uh, yeah. the jokes. Well, and she has, she has a wholesome that. image too with her fan base as well. Right. You know? And as you said, Joy, like not everyone is interested in a redemption story. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, which is also, which is also why like, Joe and these other guys are pointing out, you know, the other big cat people, Doc and all them, they're like, she used to breed cats too. It's like, all right, but she doesn't anymore. Is she be, are people beyond redemption for past sins or not? That's mm -hmm. something that, um, that jumped out at me. Um, kind of judging because, people by their lowest moment versus who yeah. they are today. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Lowest moment from over 10 years ago too. Right. So yeah, it's not surprising that Carol, if that were the case that she was, uh, doing some sex work as part of her survival strategy. I'm not surprised that she wouldn't want to talk about it publicly, especially given the way that literally every other aspect of her story was weaponized and turned against her. But it does help to make sense of why guys were like, like stopping and kind of checking her out on that street, which she does acknowledge why Don was there. You know, it's probably one of his haunts, why he had a pair of pajamas in his car. So and why he took her to a hotel that she even acknowledged was typically used by quote unquote ladies of the night. So all of those things were consistent with that being the case. One of the things, I don't think they talked about this in the Tiger King, but this was something that Carol mentioned in an interview that I listened to after she got in the car with Don and presumably was holding the revolver. He actually pulls over somewhere, puts his hands around her neck and says, you know, I could choke the life out of you right now. And she just kind of like looks at him and is like, yeah, you could. And for whatever reason, he then transitions into like massaging her shoulders. And then that's when he was, like, can you stay the night with me? You know, I just want someone to talk to. Now, if you weren't completely traumatized by your past relationships and, you know, by sexual assault and everything like that, I feel like that would be a huge red flag. And I can't imagine somebody, first of all, rolling up, with a gun on their seat and being like, hey, come into my car, you can hold this gun to feel safer, then choking me and saying, or, or, or saying you could choke me and kill me, be like, well, okay, let's spend the night together and literally fall in love with that guy because that was the, that was the kindest someone had been. And she specifically says that that was the first time somebody had done something nice for her and hadn't expected something in return. It's like, what did he do that was even nice about that? He, I don't know, it sounds like he threatened her. It sounds like he further victimized her. But I guess within the overall scope of her life experiences, it was maybe kind of part of that pattern of looking for excitement, looking for, for drama, looking for 
kind of the thrill of, you know, these types of abusive relationships, because there is always a thrill and there's always some sort of payoff to them. So I don't know. What do you guys think about that? Because I don't think that was really discussed much in the Tiger King on Netflix. I didn't know about the, uh, you know, going to, you know, park in the car at some other spot. And, you know, the statement of, oh, I could totally choke the life out of you kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was always weird to me that it was like, he comes around a second or third time, however many times it was. And it was like, hey, I have a gun, get in the car. And it's just like, yeah, okay. All of this makes sense from a sex worker perspective, though. And then also, sex workers, they endure so much craziness and violence. And so clearly, they spent a lot of time together before... I think it was like two years before she left her husband. So at some point there was uh, an opportunity for her to get out of the life that she was in. So there was an attraction that way. And then Don gets to be this savior, right? He gets to save her. And he probably got to feel like a man. So, and then Mm -hmm. she got to feel safe and secure they were both kind of feeding each other's needs, but once those needs were met, then what's really left in the relationship? Clearly we saw not a lot. Yep, exactly. So again, I feel like that's that was part of the missed opportunity here for the Tiger King Netflix series to dive into some of that stuff, to contextualize some of that stuff such that it would really make sense because otherwise it just seems like a completely like batshit crazy story. And it doesn't seem relatable at all. It doesn't make any sense at all. But there is that logic to it, like you said, when you look at it from this other perspective of overall patterns of trauma. If she was engaged in sex work previously, this probably wouldn't actually be so far out of the norm. Getting into a strange person's car wouldn't be so far out of the norm. Going to a motel or hotel room with somebody wouldn't be so far out of the norm. Threats of violence to her person. Like all that stuff would have been more commonplace and it would make more sense why she wouldn't have massive red flags and in fact she had the opposite of red flag she she went in deeper into this relationship and and, and cultivated it and nurtured, uh, nurtured it like you said over the course of several years up to the point where both she and Don left their their spouses and and married each other and this is where really big cat rescue started carol and don started a place called wildlife on easy street which was really not like tigers and lions and things of that nature, but kind of smaller cats like bobcats and lynx. And I don't think, I don't know if they talked about it in the Netflix series, but the story that I heard was they had gone to an animal auction and it's possible that Don maybe had some of these um, animals already, or, you know, maybe a, a few of them here and there, but they went to an animal auction and I believe the animals were being sold for fur possibly. And basically Carol and Don decided we're going to take them all. Like it was like, how much for all of them? And so they ended up with this huge number of bobcats and lynx. And that was the genesis of their wildlife on easy street facility, which was absolutely breeding, which was absolutely selling. And in fact, training people how to raise wild cats uh, for pet purposes. And I would say that VHS uh, that they found of Carol talking about, you know, you got to take them from their mothers right away. And you know, then, you know, this is how you do it. And oh, that's just so delightful. Like that was pretty striking to see. And I guarantee you that's not footage that Carol once shown, especially in light of her current life, where she's very much the savior of animals to see something hard evidence, hard videotape, literally talking about 
the steps involved in, you know, separating a kitten from its mother and, and, and how to do that just to make them into these like delightful pets that you can kind of chase around with like a little tassel thing. I mean, that was, that was pretty striking. I don't know. What did you think? Yeah. So I, I kind of think the opposite. So mm. here's the thing. If I was looking for advice on how to really help in a subject, someone who used to be something who now is not is really powerful because they've been where you are or they've been where you, your thinking was before. So if you look at anything from weight loss to drug addiction to anything that you're trying to overcome in your life or anything you're trying to do good for, who better than someone who used to be, who understands the industry? Like she can come from a place of knowledge that someone outside the industry might not understand. So I didn't see her shying away from any of that in the documentary. I think that that could be if I like a marketing hat, that could be a really powerful tool to say, I fucked up. I messed up. This was the person I used to be, but look how far I've come. Look at all the good I'm doing now. That could be a positive thing on her end. Well, you're on board for the redemption story. Yeah. Yeah. If you, you know, if you were looking for that, the documentary doesn't allow you to go there, right. but for her followers, they may be all in for that. Right. Mm -hmm. I'm sure they are too. It, yeah. Because from, from that marketing standpoint, someone who was where you currently are kind of thing, you, they can help guide you the way. And yeah, she knows the, or can claim rather the, the evils of breeding and selling and, and all that. Cause none of us really know the ins and outs of, of all that, like the detail that she does. But yeah, I found it interesting that, you know, she's very calm and explaining in, in her sales tape of, you know, we take the, we take the kittens from their mothers when they're really young and that's a really good thing so that they can acclimate with people. And, you know, she has a very like hippie way of talking, very like flowery, yep. hypnotic almost. I had a, <laughs> I had a psychology teacher in film school actually that talked very much the same way, like very mellow and you know, we always would fall asleep in class because it was so <laughs> soothing. And that's what her, her VHS tapes reminded me of a little bit. Yep. She's got that like flower crown and stuff like that. Um, like the original ASMR. Yes, yeah. Exactly. Well, that's, that's the thing though, is I haven't, the documentary doesn't allow for, like you said, joy for us to really, accept the redemption route because they don't really explore it her talking about it all that much and admittedly i don't follow big cat rescue myself so i don't know how much she uses this in her personal story to help the cause either yeah, yeah it's definitely it could be a powerful tool well i mean we've talked about this before the netflix documentary it's really trying to create equivalencies you know it's mm -hmm. Carol's no better than Joe is no better than Doc. It's really more like, hey, look, they all did the same thing. And I think it is interesting in this particular scenario where Carol and Dawn started off as, as private owners, as breeders, doing things like cub petting, selling cubs, trading them. That's where she started. And then she transitioned into being a rescue. Whereas Joe is literally the opposite where he started as a rescue and he actually got his first batch of animals, you know, either like a lion and a couple of tigers and like a bear and like, you know, some, some uh, chimpanzees maybe at the behest of a police department. that was like, Hey, this guy's got all these animals, you know, we need a place to put them. And Joe took them with a police escort, you know, back to his facility. So Joe really did start truly as a rescue 
and then transitioned into a, a breeding and, and kind of a, a more exploitive uh, model. And Carol, it was, it was quite the opposite. And it does seem like in terms of her story, that was one of the friction points between her and Dawn, where she was likely starting to have some misgivings and, and starting to kind of change her perspective on the breeding aspect and on the selling aspect and, and wanted to maybe move into, you know, more of a rescue type of, of situation. And Don was a businessman first. And I think they, they said something like Don's priorities were money and then the cats and then whatever women he's with. And that was his priorities. So that was one other little piece that started to kind of go south with her and Don's relationship. And one aspect of where this thing where, you know, they said that they were both very lovey-dovey with each other in the beginning and how Don was, you know, saying that she was an angel and all that stuff. It seemed like it was a pretty hot and heavy relationship initially, but some of these fractures started to take place. And, you know, obviously Don's history of, you know, philandering and, and cheating, and then a difference of opinion in the direction of uh, wildlife on Easy Street. And now we start to hear, okay, Don's maybe looking for a way out. He's, you know, pursuing a restraining order. He's talking about trips to Costa Rica. And that's when we start to see a lot of this, this, this new phase in their relationship emerge where there is tension. It seems like there's going to maybe be an impending separation. Carol's got a lot to lose. Don's got money and women and various other things kind of squirreled away here and there. And, and, and maybe he's going to make a break for it. One thing that they didn't mention in the documentary that I heard on another podcast called The Murder Squad. Aptly titled. <laughs> yes. Really fun podcast if you're into true crime. But they talked about how they heard from the sheriff's department that there was $2,000 in a safety deposit box under Don's name that was gone after he disappeared. Hmm. And so they never talked about that in the documentary. I mean, we can all talk about our different theories here, but I think Don's alive and living it up somewhere. Okay. Interesting. So you think Don's it, alive. Because he'd be... 81 82 at this stage. right or we did <laughs> can we just point yeah. out at the at the day we're recording this is the 23 year anniversary that he was reported missing oh interesting really <laughs> wow well huh. all right yeah i mean just like all the all the pieces you can look at how the documentary presented them which was putting a suspicious eye among carol but you can take all those same pieces and put them towards someone who's really figured out how to leave Carol holding the bag. Right. You know, people were saying that she had said she was planting seeds about like his dementia and all this stuff, right? And that you know, he was really scared of her and all this and that. But like, what if he had planted the seeds the other way? Like it, it could go either way. And that's what's so this disappearance, or I know that he's like legally dead, but it's just so interesting because there really is so many questions around this. It's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, it definitely, depending on where you start, you know, so whatever your originating belief is, whether Don faked his death or Carol killed him, the same pieces of, of evidence can apply equally. So for example, if you believe that Don was more or less like pulling off like a heist, you know, you can think about things like where his lawyer was like, he said something insinuating like, yeah, if I pull this one off, this is going to be like the big one or something like that. So there's, you know, some insinuation that, you know, maybe he was hatching a plot. Um, he did have pre-existing relationships and purportedly a, a girlfriend 
in Costa Rica. He had made trips down there before. You know, they'd already talked about the fact that he buried money and, and had his assets hidden. He was already an old hand at having a double life in likely business, clearly in his personal life. So, well, what would be the ultimate expression of a double life? People thinking you're dead while you're actually alive. So if you believe that Don pulled off a scheme, there's a lot of evidence to kind of fit that. And like you were saying, Joy, to set it up such that it looked bad for Carol. But then on the other end, there's clearly motive on Carol's part because the way that Don had his will originally set up, and that's that's kind of a, a key piece for me, the way that he had his, Don, his uh, will uh, originally set up, his secretary was the executor, his secretary was the one who had the legal authority to manage the estate. Carol would have essentially got nothing. She would have lost the wildlife on Easy Street. You know, she would have lost the real estate income. And we know that probably the most important thing for Carol because of all the trauma and all the terrible stuff that's happened in her life, that, that security is absolutely important. That security is the equivalent of survival. So there's absolutely a motive if that were the case that, you know, she wanted to take him out. It looks like Don had at least tried to get an injunction, tried to get a restraining order against Carol. Again, if you think that it was a setup by Don, he could have definitely set that up. Or maybe Carol had threatened him with a gun. So again, that evidence could go in two different directions. I did think the same thing with the van that they found at the airport with keys in the briefcase just in the van. That could go either way. Don could have planted it or Carol could have. I did think that it was pretty negligent on the cops part to not search the van and check it out. And instead they released it into Carol's custody for like a week or so before they did check it out. And then, of course, Carol's story about, you know, oh, yeah, Don's leaving early, early, early to Costa Rica is like first phase. And then it's like, oh, well, he's crashed his planes and has trouble thinking because of that. Or, oh, yeah, he's had Alzheimer's and, you know, he's gone missing before. And it's like none of those things really square. If your spouse, even if you suspect your spouse has dementia or Alzheimer's and they go missing, you're going to be like, we need to find them. And instead, it was the secretary, like multiple days later, who's like, Carol, you need to call the cops. And now is when the cops started looking. So Carol didn't even bother to like get the cops involved until a couple days in. Her story is all sorts of mixed up. She clearly had motive. She clearly had a lot on the line. And then after he's, he's dead, breaking into the office, grabbing the will, coming back with what seems like a, a, a fake a faked will that all of a sudden now she's in charge of everything. Now all of a sudden she gets everything. I mean, that was super suspicious to me. But just so you know, she did report him missing within 24 hours. That was confirmed with the police. Mm. So, and that, that was, new will and power of attorney was prepared a year before Don disappeared. Yeah. With his so, permission. Yeah. So he so knew the, the, he knew about the wording as well. It's that's what's right. Like, because um, I listened to the same podcast, Joy did. So, was that just so they, a... they talk about other stuff where he was funneling money down to Costa Rica as much as 400 grand. It was established by the sheriff's department that he had a girlfriend down there because he was a sex addict and it tied up with Carol's monthlies, evidently. And yeah, so he was aware that the power of attorney changed and all that. And that's how Carol had the legal authority to go into Don's assistance office and take it. 
Well, and we only have throws... Donna Siston's words right. Right. that 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 she was actually the power of attorney. We don't know that. She's just saying that. Like, so, and the interesting thing is she was supposed to get a bunch of money from Don too. Well, so, there you go. There's a third element. Yeah, there's and a I third mean, element. And again, that's what now... makes this so fun though. I mean, <laughs> right. really. But then also kind of frustrating that the Netflix documentary very definitively presented it not that way. You know what I mean? Like it wasn't questioned that Carol changed the will that she changed who was, uh, who had the power of attorney and who was the executor of the will that was presented as a, as a straight up fact. And that's what I've heard repeated in other interviews and things of that nature. So I definitely got to listen to that podcast you both listen to, cause now it's like, well, that's a whole yeah. different angle on this thing. It's um, definitely more about Don than anything else. It's mm. just stuff about Don that, the documentary left out either by you know slanting one way or the other which we've all come to agreement that in each of these episodes so far like they have a story that they're trying to tell as opposed to like an informational delivery yeah kind of thing and i think one of them even says like there could be a series just about don how Mm. like mysterious he was and and all that kind of stuff yeah and one interesting thing that i found out recently is um that eric the guy who was the main director, because I think it was like Eric and Rebecca were the were the two main um, creatives that were putting this together. His background is actually like restaurants and he's really into turtles. You know, that was his kind of thing, like reptiles, which we did get a little bit of in the first episode when he talked about how he originally set out to make a documentary about snake owners. But he's not a documentarian specifically. He's a restaurateur. Having that perspective that the documentarian's background is creating experiences for people. It's, I mean, what are you doing when you run a restaurant? You're creating an experience for people. You're creating um, a food experience. So I think with this Tiger King, he's creating a narrative experience through a very specific lens. And it's one that I think first and foremost was in the service of entertainment. It wasn't infotainment for sure. Infotainment. It was not in the service of, of a truth. And I guess did you guys watch the, um, the staircase? Mm, no what's the staircase so it's another true crime documentary and basically the guy was alone with his wife and he's accused of killing his wife but basically like there's a whole owl piece in there and the documentary really kind of makes you question like and makes it seem like it's totally feasible that he didn't kill his wife but then you find out that one of the major producers on the show fell in love with that guy while they were making the documentary. So then the editing was very changed. So like Uh I said, we have to always look at documentaries and understand that they are not, they are just storytelling through Uh that person's perspective. You know what I mean? So as much as I love documentaries, you have to look at them like you would anything else and, and dig deeper and question. And, you know, so it's the same thing here with the Tiger King. But I, I like how he did the documentary and I think it's very entertaining and it's kind of leaves room to have fun. Like you said, you've been watching all these or listening to all these different podcasts and learning all these different things, you know, it, mm-hmm. it encourages you to explore more, which I think is fascinating. And obviously it's just a reminder that nobody's ob- is objective. You know, we all want to think that we're objective and even when we're trying to be objective, Nobody is. Everyone's got a subjective point of view. Everybody's got a point of view based on our background, based on our experiences. 
And even if we're not conscious of it, anytime we take in information, process it in our brain and our body and our being, and then put it back out into the world and in a, the form of a creative work, whether that's the written word or the visual media or audio, even what we're doing right now. I mean, this is, you know, certainly our points of view. Um, I'm not going to claim to, uh, to own the truth or to be, you know, sharing truth with a capital T. It's just my truth. It's as I see things. So certainly the case with the documentarians as well. But I do think that there's a way to present that such as such that that is known. And I think that when, and again, this kind of goes back to my point where it's like, these are real lives. And if there is something that kind of casts dispersion on somebody that's going to have a real impact on their life. I mean, how many memes did you guys see where it was like, uh, Carol Baskin killed her husband, prove me wrong. You know what I mean? It's just some permutation of that. I, I saw a meme today that says, uh, the, the title was when your husband makes you throw out your crystals and it was like a close up of Carol next to one of her tigers looking at you like really you motherfucker. Go. Right. Like, and that was just today. So sure. It's entertaining and it's funny, but it's also someone's life. So yeah. Truth has become a very, it's just become a very, there's, there's really no truth. There's the, exactly. Exactly. And I think that the internet and the fact that we're all, isolated <laughs> there's a pretty i don't even know if it's famous but i've seen it a few times it's prince william right and it's like perspective is everything it's two different angles of him and on one he's doing like the reverse okay sign right so it's three fingers up pointing out the back of the hand pointing out and then on a side view it looks like he's flipping off someone right uh, so my personal credo is not the right word but my you know the way I go about things is I try and get as many different perspectives on one topic as possible and then draw a conclusion from that as opposed to like sharing a meme that someone thinks is based in fact when it's just like a picture and text on it kind of thing yep and hopefully that's what yeah. we're doing with this story it's looking at it from the perspective of the documentarians of Netflix's Tiger King as well as some of these other sources and I mean I learned something new today as much as I've absorbed about this story that was new information about Don's will I'm certainly going to go check that out because it's like oh that's a whole different angle that's a whole different wrinkle that's a whole different perspective on this thing maybe it's not somebody flipping the bird maybe it's somebody giving an okay sign and maybe that's a racist okay sign I don't know now we got to look at a different <laughs> angle so hey you know there's probably a fourth fifth uh, dimension that we could um, check out there so just to kind of wrap a couple other things that were uh, featured in this particular episode. So we talked about the fact that Carol said that Don had this trip to Costa Rica early, 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 early. He disappears. Day or two later, the cops look for him. They don't turn anything up. And obviously, if you don't have a body, you don't have a crime. You know, there's kind of some suspicions around the will and how that all shook out and who got what. But at the end of the day, Carol was in charge of his estate. Carol was now the owner of, you know, their, their animal facility. I believe she either had already or, or now transitioned wildlife on easy street to big cat rescue. I don't know how transparent she is with her current park visitors that at least some proportion of the animals at her facility were animals that she bred and purchased, uh, and had not rescued, but that's certainly part of the, the animals there were ones that she had from that original facility, which has changed in terms of its name. Um, a few years later, 
you know, she has Carol declared, uh, Carol has Don declared legally dead. I do you think it's kind of bizarre that she never had any sort of memorial or funeral, anything like that, even if it's just for his family? I mean, that's kind of disrespectful. I guess maybe they could have done it on their own. Who knows? But that's kind of a little bit weird. Maybe she thinks that he's still out there somewhere, and maybe that's why. Her description of her memorial for Don was like staring off into space one day and like blacking out and then coming to and being like, oh yeah, that's, that's me remembering Don, I guess. So I don't know, that was very strange, but again, could have been edited just to look strange, just to, you know, cast further suspicions of her, you know, and they drop in like an, an old clip of one of her educational VHSs talking about the science of getting rich in that sing song kind of hippie voice, you know, talking about doing things in a certain way. It's, yeah, whether you do it on purpose or by accident, you're going to get rich if you do it in a certain way. Mm -hmm. right? Which the assumption is maybe that certain way is having your husband disappeared and fed to some lions or put through a, a meat grinder. Which or it could be, be just he theory. disappeared. He disappeared himself and took what he wanted and yeah. left her. You could know? have been that too. <laughs> that could be the lucky part on her, right. you know, and who knows. And so we get all that, you know, we're, we've got a lot to think about there as, as an audience and then their kind of final few scenes for this episode, it's Carol meeting her new husband, Howard Baskin. They don't explain any of this stuff, which it is bizarre when you just see it. It's Carol and Howard getting married on a beach. He's in like a caveman outfit. And then there's another picture of Howard like on a leash. All of that stuff looks hey, really weird. nothing wrong with a little role play. I mean, well, you know? <laughs> yeah, whatever floats your boat. I mean, go for yeah, it. Yeah, exactly. Um, now, what I heard about this, because this was something that was in some of the interviews I listened to, that was Howard's idea, the leash thing, because he had been a lifelong bachelor. He had never been married before. And it's sort of saying, like, Carol's the woman to have finally tamed Howard. Now, how mm. wild Howard was in his bachelor days, I don't know. Like maybe playing a really like intense game of cards or something is what I envisioned for him. Um, maybe Carol maybe, was the first person who said yes to his proposal after two days. You know what? <laughs> Very likely. <laughs> so we get a little bit of that. It kind of shows, you know, Carol and uh, Howard's current relationship in kind of a wacky, weird sort of way, which again, you know, whatever they're into, I don't really care. And then they kind of end with, you know, talking to the family again, the ex-wife and the sisters, and they're like, yes, we're afraid of Carol. And then the final scene is Joe being like, I'm going to take that bitch out and I'm going to get her, you know? And it's like, okay, now we know what's coming next. This is going to be Joe going to war with Carol. Yeah, so that yeah. was like our episode three cliffhanger, which... Well, yeah, the family says they're afraid of Carol because she essentially, you know, the family was, they did like a People Magazine interview and... Right inside edition and hard copy which i don't even know if those things are still around anymore you know and carol sent them a cease and desist or they threatened them like i'm gonna take everything you have away from you sort of thing yeah. and then they asked like oh are you afraid of carol and that's when his first wife was like yep absolutely the other thing we didn't touch on which i just want to make sure because i found this very interesting is how did he get a copy of her diary, right? Joe Exotic at the beginning yep. of this says, oh, look, we've, the saga continues. We've got the diary. I'm going to read some. And he's reading it out loud on his quote-unquote TV show. That was the part where I really could, like, feel for Carol because as 
if, if you're someone who journals or write things down or you have those private thoughts, like those are for you. Those are not for to be read out loud to the world in that way. And when you look at that, how did Carol not have Joe Exotic killed? I, that's just like crossing a line, but personal boundaries. Well, that's, I mean, that's certainly what we're going to see more of is Joe's persecution complex when it comes to Carol and how he thinks she's coming after him. And in some ways she is. And, you know, I know we're going to get into that in likely the next episode, but they've already set a lot of that up in in the Netflix uh, documentary thus far. But yeah, I don't, I don't know how Joe came into possession of her diary. A, was that actually her diary? B, if it was, Again, how did he get it? Did somebody break into her house? Did somebody hack her computer? Who knows? Does he have a spy at Big Hat Rescue? Does he have a, is there a, a person on the inside working for uh, Joe Exotic? Digging up dirt on Carol? Maybe. I know that he did um, visit the facility and total invasion of privacy, but we know that Joe, at least when it comes to Carol, has absolutely zero boundaries whatsoever and is willing to do or say anything and uh maybe like even try to get her killed perhaps so we uh we shall find out i will give a big shout out to the people who made this documentary they know how to end an episode they know how to end an episode in a way that you are would make dan brown proud yes absolutely (laughs) you never get to an end of a tiger king episode and think to yourself ah maybe i'll just like cap out here you're like oh geez now i gotta watch the rest (laughs) I mean, it's served up hot and fresh. I mean, it's given you a lot of appetizing little morsels and then hits you with that little sweet something at the end to kind of keep you coming back. It's like, all right, now I got to go back for dessert, which is to say, get right back in line for the buffet and a whole nother round of murder, mayhem, and madness <laughs> with Joe Exotic and the crew at the Tiger King. But yeah, I think that that pretty much covers everything for episode three. Were there any other kind of final thoughts that uh, either of you had? No. Just definitely check out that episode of the Murder Squad. We'll put it in the show notes. Interesting tidbits in that one that make you go, hmm, well. Yeah, yeah, it definitely leads you to believe that Don could have played the long game himself in setting up escaping. And if you want to hear an interview with Carol talking about her experiences and kind of more detail into the night that she met Don, that's all on Joe Exotic, The Tiger King, which is another podcast, which we'll also put in the show notes if you want to learn more about that. So uh, we come to our final voting. Episode three, Tiger King, thumbs up, thumbs down. What's your call? Uh, Thumbs up. I love true crime. And like you guys said, it felt like an episode of 2020. I I loved every, every moment of it. It was great. Yeah, same here. Thumbs up. It's was a nice departure from, you know, the, the big cat stuff as the background. And this was just more of a, all right, here's the true crime meat and potatoes. That's going to, you know, go through the rest of this series a little bit more. I'm going to be a a spoiler and throw a (laughs) thumbs down on this one because I still really wanted the tiger. Like I wanted the tiger documentary. You know what I mean? Like I know it's called the tiger King, but that's kind of where I go back to episode two where it was going into their personalities like that really is my like that gets me going episode one where it was talking about the state of big cat ownership and stuff like that a little bit more specifically and so you know while I do find the true crime aspect interesting in this episode I feel like 
it's such a departure that, and I know that this is the direction where the series is going and just in general, but I'm just going to give it a thumbs down because I'm lamenting what could have been, what could have been in terms of the blackfish of tigers. And I really wanted to know more about that. But that said, I am on board for learning more and finding out more about Carol and Joe and their fight and everything that comes uh, to pass because of that. So thank you all for tuning in, for listening, and we will talk with you next time. Just a quick final note. If you like this episode, if you want to hear more Netflix and podcast coverage of Netflix originals, let us know what you think by sending us an email at netflixandpodcastshow at gmail.com. That's Netflix and A-N-D podcast show at gmail.com.